The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll-free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at bethestaryouare.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, howdy, howdy, Power Partners. Welcome to Radio's finest program of positive book talk, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are always so delighted to be your personal growth success coaches here on the Airwaves with you, bringing you authors, experts, and professionals that help you enjoy a more fulfilled life. Sit back, relax, pump your energy, love, learn, laugh, listen, and of course, always live your dreams with Be The Star You Are. We've got a fabulous show today as we do every week. You're going to meet author Phyllis Watts with mouth-watering recipes from her book, Where Food and People Meet. Our third segment will be of historical importance with World War II pilot and author Ralph Welsh and his anthology of experiences with his book, Wow, and then coming right up, Heather and I are going to be eating our way through the raw food craze. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity, a top-rated women's empowerment charity. Donate today at BeTheStarYouAre.org. That's BeTheStarYouAre.org. This is from Warren Buffett. There are three kinds of people, innovators, imitators, and idiots. <laughs> and with that miracle moment, it is our great, great pleasure to announce that just two days ago, Be the Star You Are, the literacy charity that brings you this positive program every week, was selected out of 46,000 reviews in the United States and 354 nonprofits uh, to be a great nonprofit. We were honored as a great nonprofit and the top rated charity in the Women's Empowerment Campaign. Campaign, and this was sponsored by GuideStar and great nonprofits, as well as other organizations, which are the um, bodyguards for transparency of all charities and nonprofits. So, I just want to say thank you to everyone who helped make this happen, to all our supporters, especially all our volunteers, and to all of the you out there who might have written a review that you said that "Be the Star You Are" was great. We are so happy to be top rated. So what is the raw food craze and is raw food good for you? Well, Heather Brittany is going to take us from the garden to the table and I'm going to just sit here and munch on a raw carrot. (laughs) (laughs) What are we eating, Heather? Okay, well, raw foodism, as it would be called, it's a lifestyle promoting the consumption of uncooked, unprocessed, and oftentimes organic food 
um, it's a large uh, percentage of the diet. So instantly when you're hearing raw food, you're probably just thinking carrots, you know, you're just thinking vegetables. But that's, it, go, it goes so much far on. So raw foodism or the raw diet is usually, um, there's a couple of different kinds. There's raw vegetarianism, raw veganism, um, as well as kinds of that introduce uh, raw meats as well as um, raw fish. So raw foodism can include any kind of diet primarily of unheated food or food warmed at a temperature that's less than 104 um, degrees Fahrenheit. Does that mean that sushi counts? Yes, ma'am. Woohoo! When I'm, um, I'm on that diet. Exactly. And so the thing is with it is that they're really about because they um, the the kind of thought process behind raw foodism um, or the raw food diet is that when you cook foods, it kills the essential uh, nutrients as well as the enzymes, especially. So that's why um, if for some things that need to, for um, health reasons, be slightly almost blanched, just slightly cooked. It can't be more than 40 degrees Celsius, um, or actually it ranges between 40 to 46 degrees Celsius, which is a range of 104 to 115. And as you know, in a cooking essence, that's very low. Um, that's nearly nothing. For most things, just to begin with, start at 350, um, baking-wise. So, and water, you know, 450. So um, it's very, very lightly, you know, if, if heat has to come into it, it's very, um, at a very low thing. So, well, you, before you go on, you bring up something very important there because you're talking about baking. So if you bake something, it couldn't be raw then, like you couldn't have bread or cookies or any well, of that because well, there it would be at a temperature high. There are certain ways of making the thing. So they use, um, you know, when making the raw food diet, they, is, there's actually phenomenal restaurants and a lot of celebrity backings with it, of course, um, to be, you know, the big craze with it. But preparation-wise, there's a lot of, just as um, with a lot of foods, with veganism, there's a lot of neat ways of kind of creating these things. So for the most part, they use um, blender, food processors, juicers and dehydrators and there's a lot of ways you, know, you can make or in essence bake something without actually having to bake it so um you know they created a lot of you know certain doughs that don't use um you know or things that can be almost you know sitting out in the sun or that takes such a long food preparation time um so i did a lot of kind of like dried fruits for example i used to work in the in the fields and in the dried fruit sheds where we would take the raw food fruit, cut it in half, lay it on trays, <coughs> excuse me, it would be dressed, dusted with a little bit of sulfur and then just laid in the sun until it was dried. So that would be considered raw food. Exactly. But it actually <laughs> dries out. Okay. So, yeah, as I said, it's because they use a dehydrator for it. But they're really particular on it, especially when it comes um, into incorporating um, an omnivore thing, if using, um, you know, fishes and meats. And fish, uh, fish-wise, you know, it could be like sashimi or meat could be like a, I think, is it called a capricio? Capricio? Yeah, I, um, well, that's when you slice beef or any kind of exactly. meat really, really so thin. Slightly thin because, um, you know, for health reasons, it's capaccio, it's actually, but it's there we, there we go. So, um, anyway, so with it, so, uh, with the vegan diet, that one only consists of the vegetables and fruits and nuts. The vegan one, uh, the vegetarian, pure vegetarian, um, incorporates milks and, uh, 
milks as well as uh, eggs, but no meat. And then there's also the raw animal food diet, as I said, that in- introduces the sashimis, the thinly sliced. So the kind of the worry with it is that people, there are the chances, you know, of E. coli or having things at raw, uh, raw levels. So that's why if you're going to be getting uh, eating meats or eggs or cheeses or milks, they're really big about getting the organic or fresh range because there's been studies that have shown that free-range animals um, are less likely to come in contact with E. coli or any pathogens that may, um, foodborne illnesses that would come in contact well, see, with living in. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, as most of the listeners know, I raise chickens and I have a little poultry project and people come to my office and buy fresh eggs. And what I have several people that are, um, well, they're not, I, they're, I, are they kind of partial vegetarians, but they do only want organic and they will only eat my eggs. And if I'm out of eggs, they won't buy them because they said the same thing is that they're going to be, it, you know, they have less worry of any kind of pathogen. And a big thing with the raw food is against grains. And there was actually a Cornell University study um, showing that animals that were grass, that were free, that were um, ate grass-fed animals were less likely to have E. coli in their systems than animals that were grain-fed. So that's a big thing, too. You know, when people, you know, it's really good, I'd say, read books or, or um you know, get some cookbooks regarding it so that you don't put yourself in any kind of danger because there are potentials for um, poisoning, such as buckwheat greens are toxic when um, when raw, especially if they're juiced or eaten in large quantities, as well as kidney beans and kidney sprouts are toxic when they're raw, and that's due to um, a chemical that's in it. And actually with um, the buckwheat one, if consumed in it, one of the toxins in it is that it can actually cause a photosynthesis of the skin. So it can cause a greening or spotting of the skin. So that's a big thing. Of course, always raw eggs can be very um, dangerous. So that's why, you know, it's very... Uh, Before you go to the eggs, I just wanted to jump in there with the plants because I think it's really, really important what you're saying. So many people assume that because it's a plant that that everything is edible... But be really cautious. We'll do a show. Um, I do a whole lecture about edible plants and poisonous plants. And sometimes the the leaves may be poisonous and the fruit is okay or the bark is poisonous and the leaves are okay. So just like rhubarb, you know, Mm -hmm. you can eat the stalks, but you can't eat the leaves that's poisonous. So before you ingest anything, you really want to make sure that it's edible. Definitely you hit on something of, of even going beyond of, you know, they, they sell books and stuff, of, especially for people that are out camping. I think beyond just that, really, I, I would say go to almost a nursery, find out what you're eating. And, and any of you have seen that movie, uh, is it Into the Wild or The Call of the Wild? Where it, and then really it killed him at the end is that he has this book showing him, you know, all the, the plants that he can eat and can't poisonous ones. And as we know, in nature, so many things um, play twins to one another, just as with poisonous and unpoisonous snakes or spiders, that he eats a plant believing it's this one plant, only to turn out it was actually this terribly horrible poisonous, almost like a hemlock-type plant. Right. So make sure if, um, you know, if you are going to try to eat, you know, it's always, you know, we know the certain things, but fresh greens that you're uncertain about or out in the wild, really make sure you know what you're eating in it, because some things are um, poisonous when raw and unpoisonous, you know, when cooked. 
So definitely if you're going to do any kind of wild, you know, uh, from the wild plants, make sure you really know um, what you're eating and what the And that especially goes for, you know, mushrooms and those uh-huh. kinds of things. Mushrooms can be incredibly, incredibly toxic. So we have to be so cautious about that. Really, really important. Exactly. And certain things such as uh, raw sweet potato, raw cabbage, cauliflower, uh, turnips, canola oil, pine nuts, certain things like that are very healthy for you, but they do um, contain a small amount. It's a, a gyrogen, I guess, and they can interfere um, with certain metabolism problems. So, um, well, all the- of this is fantastic information, so let's give out the website. Most definitely, we want you to check out BeTheStarYouAre.org, BeTheStarYouAre.com, MySpace.com, forward slash Crutches, both with a K. And I also want you to go to uh, star-style.com. If you're interested in more information about plants and what's edible, et cetera, go to my gardening site there where there's a lot of information. And if you need someone to come and speak to you, I am available for that. When we return from break, we are going to stay in the kitchen. We're going to have more fantastic recipes. We're going to travel tales with author Phyllis Watts. Doesn't this make you hungry, baby? Well, stay with us. I am Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. I think Heather is gone. And this is Star Style. Be the star you are. We'll be back in a bit. Thanks for being with us. Don't go away. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Apathy, violence, and negative messages are everyday occurrences in our country. You can be a change maker when you dare to care by supporting Be the Star You Are Charity, a 501c3 that empowers women, families, and youth through improved literacy, positive media, and tools for living. Visit www.bethestarur.org to find out how you can make a difference in our world. Everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. Be the star you are.org. Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature star-style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7827. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com. CynthiaBryan.com. You can be the star you are. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. We appreciate you staying with us when we bring you the authors and experts who enhance and help you excel in life. Phyllis Watts learned early in life how to spin a tail. In nursing school, she learned to be a concise, factual writer. And then when she started traveling to 49 states and Canada, she learned that there was food beyond Missouri. Welcome, Phyllis, to Be the Star You Are. Thank you. I'm glad to be here well, with you. Well, I'm excited. Phyllis is the author of Where Food and People Meet, and she just knows how to captivate uh, an audience. But I had to laugh, Phyllis, that <laughs> your dad used to tell you when you were growing up in St. Louis that, you know, if it wasn't in St. Louis, it probably wasn't worth having or you didn't need it. Mm-hmm. So how Tell us about how you began to cultivate your culinary uh, experiences, you know, in other cities and states and meeting all these great people that told you some fun and wacky stories. Well, when I was traveling, uh, people just want to naturally serve you the things that they like or their family favorites. They kind of want to show off the dishes that are special to them or to their areas. And so I ended up finding out uh, history of areas through the food. I found out a, a history of people and their ancestry and their cultures with the food that they served and uh, started collecting the recipes because I thought, oh, well, when I settle down, I want to take those memories and those things with me as well. And, of course, the more things that I tasted, the more I realized there were a lot of things that I hadn't had as a child with my German-Irish background. Well, and and it's a big book. You really did do a lot of exploring and and communicating with people to come up with all these recipes. And uh, these are all, did they actually write them down for you, or did you figure out just from tasting the different things? How did it actually, you know, come about, or was it different for each time? It was different each time. Sometimes when people would take us to a restaurant, they'd say, oh, this is something that we have that is of the area. And so I would taste it. And, you know, you can look on a menu. And back in the 70s, not so much, but nowadays a lot, they'll list a lot of the ingredients and things that are involved in it. A lot of the part that I had to figure out sometimes was the actual spicing uh, flavors, because uh, that, uh, that can be a secret of a chef's, you know, different recipes. Did um, you have many people that said, oh, I don't want to share that? Because, you know, sometimes that's the way it, it is with people, although from reading the book, it sounds like most people were more than excited when you got excited about the food. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, it was very, very rarely that anybody did not want to share a recipe with me. Uh, most of them were happy to hand it to me. I have, oh, I have pages and pages of of handwritten, um, which I kept uh, just as souvenirs, just of the people themselves. I would write little notes on the recipe of who they were and what we shared and different things. And so it was basically a diary when I settled down that I had of all these things that I had experienced and uh, sharing those with other people. And as I got to learning different ways of cooking and different uh, things to 
put together, I started sharing that with other people. And then I started having people in my home, and those were the recipes that I used to share with them because I had loved them so much. And because when you're in certain areas, you don't get to taste things, say, from the East Coast if you're in the Midwest or even uh, West Coast, unless you go to a restaurant, maybe. But uh, when you have it in somebody's home and they say somebody actually from that area is the one who gave me this recipe and it was handed down generation to generation, it just makes it even more special, I think, and um, very traditional. It um, always brings out conversation. That's the one thing I love about food is that you can always start a conversation about food, and you're on safe ground with people. <laughs> well, I think what I, there's so many things I love about the book, but I, I just I love how rich and delicious and nutritious uh, so many of oh. these recipes are. I had forgotten about rhubarb when you started talking about rhubarb in here, <laughs> and it just gave me a hankering for it, and I had to laugh how... You found, you know, you didn't even know that you had this rhubarb uh, <laughs> plant, and you kept trying to get rid of it, and dang it, you couldn't get rid of it. So eventually, it's your new place. You figured out how to how to cook with it. I thought that was so funny. Oh yeah, we have our rhubarb plant that we we actually planted in our garden here at our home in Wasilla because I didn't have a rhubarb plant in my my yard finally, <laughs> and I love it. I I can't wait for it to finally the stalks to come out so we can start using it for all the recipes that I've collected. Yes, yes. Well, you know, uh, that was what I thought was another amazing thing here is you were never professionally trained. You just had a passion for food and for people. And this is, of course, why you named your book uh, Where Food and People Meet because that is the way that they join together. Mm-hmm. But uh, did you just teach yourself? I mean, how did that yeah. come about? Because you make it really simple. You you break okay. it down so that anybody can cook. Oh, good. That's what my my point was. I, I I my sister is not. She will tell you she's not a cook. And actually, she does cook, but she just doesn't think she does because she doesn't create these you know incredibly expansive meals and things. And I I don't think you have to to be a cook. And I think the word cook uh, relates uh, a warm feeling, a uh, feeling of home feeling of family, and people who say they don't cook, I think, feel like they're missing something with that. And I don't think anybody has the ability not to cook something. You just have to find out what that is that you specialize in, whether it's a cookie or a cake or, or a meal of some type. And I, it's such I am so glad you said that, Phyllis, because, <laughs> you know, I think you are so right there that people get intimidated when it comes to beautiful presentation mm-hmm. or fancy dishes or all of that. Mm-hmm. And so. especially if they know, I'm sure when you come over and they know, oh, my gosh, not only did she cook, but she wrote a cookbook, you know, <laughs> uh, it probably is one of these things they think I could never do it. But I think you hit the nail on the head. If you have a passion for it, it some of the most wonderful meals are the simplest. Mm-hmm. They're the simplest. So it doesn't have to be all drawn out, and it doesn't have to be difficult. And that's what you have done in your book, Where Food and People Meet. You can you easily show people how they, too, can be star cooks because <laughs> you have at the back, you have a, a great glossary that really made it easy. Um, you call it don't squirm with the term. Mm-hmm. And I found myself even going through there and going, aha, oh, that's what it means. <laughs> and <laughs> well, so I, I liked it, the so. way that you put your book together. Oh, it good. has a lot of humor, too. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and, and it seems like um, the sharing is, is the most important part of it. I mean, there, there have been meals that have been what people would consider a catastrophe and uh, in a regular cooking session, and we've enjoyed them. You know, you pick out what you can eat, and you go with it, you know, and all of a sudden you've got a story or a memory or a moment that is all just for that right there, and that's shared with those people for that time and space, and it's a memory that you can't take a photograph of or anything, but it's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's a part of who we are, and you take it with you as you go. And what that's... were some of the foods that you grew up with? Because this book is so varied with <laughs> with everything, you know, but, you know, soups, salads, mm-hmm. uh, entrees, dessert, mm-hmm. foreign kinds of foods, omelets, eggs, everything, all mm-hmm. kinds of different sautés and all that. What was the actual food? Was it more of the Irish, you know, kind oh, of yes. meat and potatoes? Or? Very basic, uh, fried chicken, uh, uh, lots of sausages and um, uh, Polish sausage, sauerkraut. Um, we had basic stew. Um, my dad would fix the eggs on the weekend, but it wasn't something that we had anything else other than like the scrambled eggs. Uh, or we'd have it for dinner on Thursday night before the paycheck on Friday when <laughs> when you can go to the store and get some more things. But it was very basic, but uh, chilly. Um my mom actually was not much of a cook before she married my dad and because uh, my grandmother had done all the cooking and everything, and she didn't think it was her thing either. And uh, so my dad is actually the one that taught her to cook some very basic things from his German uh, parents, and that's what we ate. Um, we really didn't have salads until I was in my teens. I didn't even have quiche until I was in my 20s. <laughs> you know? um, Stir-fry was nothing I heard about until I was in my late 20s. <laughs> so, it's so um, fascinating because how varied your your interests are and how varied your menus are. Mm-hmm. So, But do your palate, I mean, when you grew up like that, mm-hmm. your palate changed as you started traveling? Or oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that well, how is that what it when it really uh yeah. you know, developed more? Mm-hmm. And the the uh group I was with, it was kind of a uh, a known thing that, you know, you don't really turn down and my own heart, I can't turn down somebody who has worked on something to give to me, uh, like a meal and right. say, Oh no, I don't eat that or I don't eat this or anything and so I tasted everything. I tried everything once, <laughs> which sometimes it was good they didn't tell me what it was until after I ate it, <laughs> like some of the game meats that I ended up tasting that I had no idea about. But um, it was, I guess that's when I realized that it is your palate. I mean, there's some things in, like I said, in the food and people meat that I don't like particularly. I never got a, uh, a love for liver and onions. My husband does. So that's something that I will then cook for somebody. I don't taste it while I'm cooking it, so I had to learn to cook it without tasting it, which is, you know, a culinary no-no, they say. But if you don't like something, it's just not something that I'm not going to make for somebody. And well, so, did you find when you uh, were, you know, testing all of these recipes out, though, that maybe you developed a liking for something you thought you didn't like before? Oh, definitely. Rhubarb being the main one. Well, rhubarb, yeah, that one's a big one. <laughs> and asparagus now. I'm eating, uh, eating asparagus now, and I never ate it. Uh, uh, Interesting. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's, it's, it's wonderful because even with picky kids, and I guess that was part of it too, is uh, my ne- niece and nephew were very picky when they first came to live with us, and so it was very hard. And after having a husband I could cook anything for, and he would try anything. And his mom taught him she was from the Depression era, and you ate what was on your plate no matter what, you know, otherwise you had it for breakfast. So he, he learned to eat anything, but he, he finally learned to be able to give me comments on what he thought was good after a while, but the picky kids, you know, you you try really hard to try and and get them a nutritious, but something that they like. You know, I just don't believe that you should force feed someone they don't like. But on the other hand, you should always try something before you say you don't like it. You know, and and that that has to do with the smell of it, the look of it, the taste of it. You know, and if something looks appealing in some way that is, you know. Sprinkle a little cheese on a, a vegetable first if kids like cheese. I mean, you're not, you don't have to drown it in the cheese. Just put a little on there so that they say, ah, cheese, before they see the green or the orange or whatever color the vegetable That's is. A, that is a great idea. That is a great <laughs> idea. Do you, now, you're living in Alaska now, mm-hmm. so do you, and you have a short growing season, but, boy, you can grow amazing things up there. Mm-hmm. Do you have your own garden? Um, I have an indoor garden. Uh, well, it's outdoor now. It's on the deck. Um, but you have to kind of start things indoor Indoors, here. right, because <laughs> of the weather. Yeah, um, but once you put it outside, uh, we only have like a dusk, especially right now, between 12 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And for the rest of the time, we've got sun, um, and it's, it, it makes things grow. But then you have to think about how you're going to store those so that you have things later. And a lot of the herbs and things I will keep in the garage. Uh, sometimes we use a grow light. Sometimes just having them indoors, uh, enough sun comes through most of uh, the other months of the year. Winter, you know, we do have the darkness and everything, so the grow light helps. But, you know, if you've stored things up well, which is what's in my next cookbook, is how to keep things so that you can use them all year round, how you can keep uh, things on hand that can improve the way we fix things. In fact, the next one is, is going to be more on the low-fat, low-sugar. As our life changes and as life you know, moves on and our bodies change, everything ages, uh, you have to kind of change your eating habits. But you shouldn't have to forego nutrition, economy, or even the simpleness of cooking. I just don't think you have to be complicated in being able to bring a good, nutritious, economic meal that everybody can kind of enjoy. You know, when you're enjoying what you eat, you enjoy the people you're with, you enjoy the experience. And once again, you know, I've met so many people in so many places, and I have no photographs to uh, document most of those times. It's just the people and the conversation that we had. I mean, I'll smell a smell, and all of a sudden a whole conversation, something comes up, and I'll start telling my husband about something, and he'll go, where did that come from? And it's like, oh, well, I just smelled the... the, the Well, and it brings back memories, but that's what food does. We are speaking with author and cook Phyllis Watts. Her book is Where Food and People Meet. It's a comprehensive cookbook with all kinds of wonderful recipes, very simple things to make. Some are more extravagant, but delicious, and lots of different fun drinks, etc. It's this You really have done a, just a wonderful job with it, Phyllis, and I like the idea that you are doing a book on how to store and preserve and keep things, because 
I know that with everyone or so many people today wanting to do organic or fresh or whatever, there's also the the people that are thinking, oh, goodness, if it's a day old, it's time to throw it out, you know. Mm, yeah. And that's not true. We're, I think people are wasting a great amount of good food because they don't know any better. We do, and, I, and I'm trying to also uh, highlight not using preservatives and chemicals and fillers and just making it very fresh and very, even if it's out of a can, you can make something that doesn't have to be full of chemicals and preservatives, which as a school nurse I learned was probably most of the problems that we have as far as allergies and, and obesity. And obesity, and obesity we don't have a problem with food. We have a problem with gluttony. You know, advertising has taught us that we have to have these large amounts and we have to have these, you know, uh, uh, bargain sizes in order to feel like we're satisfied pocket-wise and stomach-wise, and we just need to kind of cut back and say, okay, I need to know what my body needs, and, and it's a slow process that's hard for a lot of people, and so I'm trying to simplify it so that we can all be healthy. Exactly, you know? and there's no reason why we can't all be healthy if we, you know, if we kind of follow the guidelines that you're giving us in your book where food and people meet, and uh, do you have a title yet for your new book? Or do you yes, know I do. It's called Where Food and People Still Meet. <laughs> ah, very good. Did your nursing influence a lot of the recipes that you decided to include in here? Yes, yes. I would think so. Yes. I tried to keep... It really is. It's just very balanced what you did. I think I you just did very a very hard. balanced uh, also, But I also wanted to have the recipes that reminded people, you know, of, of times, you know, the comfort foods and things but still keep it balanced, like you said. And one of the things that one of the uh, nursing physicians said to me the other day was, there's a recipe in here for everybody. (laughs) There is. There there truly is. And I can attest to that because I have the book and I am making the recipes. Well, let's give out your your, uh, website so people can go to your uh, website, get the book. It's wherefoodandpeoplemeet.com. Is there a different website you want to give out, or is that the one? That's the one. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, Phyllis, thank you so much for sharing your expertise all the way from Alaska. I know you're going to continue to travel and to keep inspiring all of us with all these good things. I really look forward to your next book. Oh, I will send it to you for sure. (laughs) That sounds so great. Well, thanks for joining us here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. That's Phyllis Watts, Where Food and People Meet. Go to wherefoodandpeoplemeet.com. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Phyllis. Well, we're going to remember the heroes of World War II when pilot and author Ralph Welsh joins us in our next segment. He's got a remarkable anthology. Wow, it is a wow. I'm Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. We'll be right back. Stay with me. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk.
You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, thank you for staying tuned here to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, where the world comes to talk, listen, and be entertained. An impressive and important contribution to the history of World War II, with over 100 stories from the combat missions. It's only part of the amazing anthology penned by Ralph Welsh a World War II pilot and author of WOW. Welcome, Ralph, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Well, thank you. Wow, I want to say, wow, wow, wow. You have led an impressive life, and you have chronicled so many of your wow experiences in, in your anthology called WOW. I want to start in the beginning, though, Ralph. You were born in 1920 in Montana. Can you take us back? to the days of the Depression and the Dust Bowl and those years before you joined the Army Air Force, and then we'll get to your flying days and all these great stories in here. Well, certainly. Well, I, I remember the Depression well because uh, my father was a grain buyer, uh, bought grain, and the crops and the Depression and the bad weather drove us out of North Dakota and Montana, always about eight miles from Canada, drove us out in our 19... 19- uh, 1928 Chevrolet, my parents, our dog, and myself, on the day after I graduated from high school in 1936, age 16, you could skip grades then because I went, I went to a one-room school for the first uh, seven years of my life. Which most uh, people my, don't even uh, know uh, what uh, that my, is. My, my school life, yeah. And so anyway, we took off and, and we did odd jobs. Uh, I went to business school and, uh, from that I, uh, became a stenographer for Heckler Mining Company. When there, though, I could see the advantages of people who had been to college, and I got the chance because the war came along, and I applied and became a bomber pilot, uh, the commander of a, of a B-24 for 33 missions in the Force, 8th Air Force in the summer of, of 1944. This is what your book kind of centers around. The name of the book is WOW. It's an anthology of B-24, 8th Air Force, World War II stories, and there are tons of stories in this book. But let's talk about how you kept a diary after each of your missions, I understand. Did that help you when you were writing WOW? Well, yes, it it became part of the book because uh, every time I came back from a mission, I bought a little... I had purchased a little uh, English notebook, or blank uh, one, and I made a record of it. And it, it really shows the strains of combat and the way you, you feel about it. Whereas, um, and that, uh, that, is, that is in Chapter 3, it's, uh, it's an integral part of, of, the, of the book. But the book is not mostly about me. It's, it's literally a history book of World War II. And, and really the major portion of it, there are 65 stories by people who wrote it up, and they said, this is, was my most memorable mission. And if we have time at the end, I'll read off some of the stories of the 148 stories in the book, because it's a diverse book, uh, but, but actually it's, it's, it's really history. 
it's definitely a history book. I was a history major, and I just found it fascinating in reading it because it's, uh, today, you know, in 2010, People weren't, most people weren't there. I just admire getting the opportunity to speak to a, a true World War II veteran and a hero in my mind. Because, you know, one of the stories in there said that when the Germans were flying their Air Force, they, were, they thought that they had like eight, they could do eight missions safely. That was what they were thinking. Whereas, I mean, you're saying all these missions that you did, is there one that sticks out in your mind? Well, yes. The my toughest mission actually was to, Ber- to Berlin uh, on, on June, I think, it was twenty first, nineteen forty four, and you know Berlin was the capital, of course, of of Germany and well protected, uh, with an awful lot of of flak guns down there, and it was the one where we had our number one engine shot out actually all before we even got to the target, and then another burst came up. And it went through our thick flat glass. It hit me in the back. And, and actually, the only reason I survived is because it went through that flat glass before it hit me in the back, and it would have gone through me. But anyway, I have pictures of that in the book and all the, all the details. Well, that's another part I just wanted to bring out to all our listeners. There are fantastic pictures in this book. And that, I think that really brings it more alive to people when they're reading it. I mean, you have a picture when you're coming back from a mission and you, you just look exhausted. There are maps in there and different photos of the, uh, the B-24s actually in flight. I, I don't know if we can truly understand what it's like to be on a bomber. What was it like to be in it, to be the pilot of one? Well, it was a job. I mean, we were trained. And we knew what our job was, and you had nine other men there to help you. Uh, so it was a team effort, actually. Uh, that's the advantage, I think, of of, uh, of being in the military. You have other people with the same mission that you have, and uh, they know their job as you do. You're all professionals, and you simply do your job. Now that gets me to something that's in the book. Again, we are talking to author and pilot Ralph Welsh, his book is Wow, and it's an anthology of B-24, 8th Air Force, World War II stories, over 65 bomber crew narratives, and just lots of memorable uh, combat missions. Is uh, w- There are many stories in this book that talk about how much the people loved Americans and how much the children loved the, the GIs that were over there because Children in those days, I guess, especially in Europe, were supposed to be seen but not heard. And you, while you were in England, encountered a, a child who actually looked all of you up many years later and brought you back for a reunion. Will you tell us a little bit about that? I thought that was an Ameri- a, a very special story. Well, uh, as you know, the most important thing in the, in the world are people. And, and actually, this is a people book. I mean, there are actually 21... Uh, particular stories uh, about people, uh, but one of them is, is called about Pat's Enduring Mission, and that's the woman that dedicated really her life to being friendly with the Americans and say, we can't forget what you've done here. When I first met her, she was a really pretty unsophisticated English woman, and ultimately she met thousands of Americans. They would even pick you up at the railway station on Norwich and drive you out to our base and show you all of all the memorabilia that she's collected. And the tower at the base there is is still 
It's still intact, in very good condition, and it um, they have uh, they have open houses the first Sunday of every month. So, the, when we went there, my group met there one time. It was it was kind of embarrassing. The people wanted to get get my autograph just because I I had been on mission. But anyway, it was it you know what's really important in life is to meet people and and have friendly people who who respect things and and that's really a lot of the book. Those are the things that I made it a point to get in the book. Well, and there's uh, there's other sides of the story too that I found fascinating. You have an in-depth interview with a um, a high-ranking German who actually was convicted in the Nuremberg trials and spent 20 years in prison uh, because of his involvement in making the ball bearings and the casings and things for the, the German forces. And then it's an interview with both an American and a German. I found it fascinating to see both sides of the story and what each one was thinking. You don't see that very often in history books. You usually get one well, side of the story. You have both. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the readers, uh, my, my veteran readers, replied that on, on one of the reader comics. He said, sure have enjoyed, wow, the eager, that's General Ira Eager, Nazi spear interview was worth the price of the book. But I agree with that. Some other some other contents on the book by by actually a fellow who is a pro in the business and hit his own uh, business for for thirty years book business. Uh, he he made this comment. He said, "Wow, uh, is a must read for every history class on our planet." And he said, "It's an important contribution to the literature of World War II. Open it any place. There's a story. Wow will continue to sell." In 2025. In other words, it's a, back, it's a backlist book, not a frontlist book. And another one, wow, is great, hard to put down, send me two more copies. Fantastic, brings back memories. And uh, wow, is full of great stories. But, but that's, that's it. I have, I have, oh, at least 60, 70 comments such as that. All positive. <laughs> and, and what I like about it, Ralph, and what you just said in that it should be in every history class is these are real stories from real people who were actually there. In fact, you dedicate uh, your book to the men and women who served, and many of these people had given their lives. But these are the actual stories. This isn't made up. This isn't a his story or a her story. This is the missions that people were on. This is the people that they met. This was how they interpreted what happened on V-Day or D-Day or what, they, what happened to them when they were on the front lines. And it is important that our children and our grandchildren remember World War II. It is very important. And that's, you have really made a contribution to history here. The, the children do. I, I go along with the Collings Foundation. They invited me to travel with them. They have a B-24, B-17, and a P-58, and they make over 100 stops uh, during the summer. And, and actually, those are the people. There are a few veterans there, but you see, you have to be practically 90 years old, as I am, uh, to, still be, to still be surviving. But, but the children do, and they're the ones that are really interested in the book. Uh, and, and, and actually... Uh, they they are the ones that 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 are interested in, and follow up on this. Well, you are talking. First of all, I want to just say to everyone, 
He is 90 years old. He sounds like he's 25 years old. You have more energy than most people. You could put five people with you, Ralph. You just are such a go-to it. I find that you are an inspiration for all of us. I want to be you when I grow up. (laughs) Well, thank you. uh, Let's talk about your tour. You're on tour. If if they're by their computer, just dial in uh, in, wow.book. Dot com. I uh, pipe that in. The very first item that comes up is is my uh, page in the net. It owes oh, is 12, 15 pages. It gives you all the details. It even gives you three sample stories that are that are in the book, and it tells you know how to purchase it, of course, and uh, and it uh, it it is. Well, it's very definitive in, in uh, what the book is. It gives you a very good idea. And you have you have pictures of the front and the back cover. On the back cover is the crew, and on the very left hand side in the first row is happens to be me, the pilot. And next to me are the other nine members of my crew. There was a story in the book um, talking about gunners and pilots that when there were uh, when there were um, I get what do you call it? Planes down, whatever it is. When you have a kill, whatever that usually the pilot gets the credit, and a lot of times that the gunner is the one that you know they were just part of the team. It was that the same. How, how did that work? Could you just explain that further? Well, well, the pilot is the commander, right? But but it's it's a team. I mean, uh, the, the no one person. It's a fairly complex. It's a big airplane. It has forty eight hundred horsepower. And and it's it's big and and when you're loaded with bombs and gas, you weigh sixty five thousand pounds, and in those days, I mean sixty six years ago, um, that was a pretty good sized airplane, but but actually you you needed you needed the navigator to tell you how to get there without getting lost, and you needed the uh, bombardier to drop the bombs, you needed the engineer to tell you your gas settings, and if something went wrong. Uh, with with anything in that area, he would do that. You needed the radio operator, and then of course you needed the gunners, and the gunners were there in case you were attacked by a, by a German fighter. And so it, so it was, was a totally team. a team effort. You had to have all the people. Oh yes, it, it definitely was. And we we had the training. You could always use more training, but but we were good. We had we had good training. Now, are you? Are there many of your crew still alive? Are you in contact with them? Well, only one, and after, actually, we lost each other after 50 years, and it was through Pap Everson that I mentioned. Right, that you kept contact. She got us together, but I was was aware of eight of my crew and and knew all of them and saw most of them uh, various times after the war. Um, But two of them I never never did find, the ball turret gunner and the radio operator. There's something else that caught my attention, and it just seems uh, maybe that's how it is in war, but people were so young, 17, 18, 19. There was one story about a, a, a gentleman came in, and he was so much older. I think he was 28 or something. Yeah. He was considered, you know, the old man. Yeah. So yeah. people well. were really young, and they really you had to be brave and strong and learn quickly. Yeah, well, I wrote a story that I sent to the Madison, Wisconsin story. Izzy was a hero. He was my engineer, eight years yeah. older than I. But, but anyway, to I see we don't have that much time left. I'd like to quickly go through my life. After I got out, I went to Gonzaga and Stanford, 
And I was recalled during Korea, but not in a flying position. And then at age 32, I said, hey, it's time to learn what to do with my life. And I got into the investment business, and that allowed me to meet my wonderful wife, Anne. And we met in April in Portland, Oregon. She was teaching school. We got engaged in May. We got married in June. And one time I told that story, and somebody looked at me quizzically, and so I added, and our first child was born 25 months later. <laughs> but, but I went from that to being a stockbroker. We moved to San Francisco. I became a stockbroker. And I didn't have enough larceny in my heart to make a good living during down markets. And, and so uh, I became a manager, and I was always interested in companies for sale. And I actually engineered as a finder intermediary 11 companies and, and sold the last six for $5 million or more to people like Labatt and H.J. Heinzbott. Chico San for $11.5 million. I shared the fee with a fellow who was, was about the buyer. But anyway, at age 87, my wife and I retired from a business we started, a graphic art supply mail order company. We started from scratch, and we imported uh, products from Japan. And actually, that company, we turned it over to our son, uh, and he operates it right now. It's called Welsh Products. And it, it is a it's a do-it-yourself uh, printing company, and uh, it has supplies, and it's a do-yourself printing supplies, and these, uh, on the Internet, you can reach and see the supplies at welshproducts.com. And Welsh one more thing, com. I'm traveling with the Collins Foundation. I will be in, in Sacramento this weekend on Saturday and Sunday, then Concord the next weekend. And then I'll be in right south of Portland, Oregon, with the group selling my book uh, in Aurora, and then uh, Tacoma, uh, Everett, and then in Seattle for two days. Uh, well, and your, your book is available at many air museums, which I imagine you'll probably post the names on your website of where uh, those museums are, but... People can buy the book by going to wow-book.com. That's just wow, and that is a um, just a dash book.com. Wow, you have lived wow a wow hyphen. life. It's, it's wow-book.com. Yes. Uh, exactly. Now, um, the, let's see, I was going someplace else, and sometimes when you're 90, you forget things. But... Uh, uh, well, I don't remember where I was going to go. Well, that's I was just going to give out the. Listeners, I was just going to give out WelshProducts.com. If, if anyone's interested in the WelshProducts.com and then Wow-Book.com, but Ralph, you have lived such a great life. There's so much in the book. Also, besides just the stories of World War II, you have many anecdotes and stories from your life that really have showed that the important thing in life is to live positively, live fully, live one day at a time, and enjoy every moment. And you're a great example of that. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, to share well, these stories. They are well, a wow. Yes, well, they say that I have it in 40 may, uh, 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 museums, both Smithsonian's buy it, so does the Wright-Patterson and, and over 40 museums. The Collings Foundation that travels around has already bought 154 books. So anyway, it, it, is, it is a popular book, uh, and uh, 
you know, we, we hope that you enjoy it. Yes, and they will, and they will. Again, thank you so much. Everyone go to wow-book.com. This has been the, the book is Wow Anthology of Bees 24 by Ralph Welsh. Thanks, Ralph, for being on Star Sale. Be the star you are. Best of success with this book. It will be around for centuries to come because it's a great history book. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your, your, uh, your, your uh, audience. Well, we really appreciate it. That was Ralph Welsh. Again, his book is Wow. And thank you to all of you for joining me. We will be together next week to celebrate right here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. And until then, go out in the world and be the star you are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. Thanks for joining. Thanks again for listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. For more information about Be the Star You Are nonprofit corporation, please visit bethestaryouare.org. That's bethestaryouare.org. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany again next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, here on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember, to be a leader, you must be a reader. Enjoy a stellar week. You're a seeker.